I was made a poet long before I was born. The struggles of my existence was a metaphor of its own. I never tried, but poetry came to me through my mother. You see, she is an agricultural poet who speaks to the earth, turning hard concrete into life-giving gardens. She is gentle, patient and strong. Despite experiencing so much horror and pain, she remains calm, refusing the horrifying dreams that tries to take her back where she once was, constantly putting her in a state of hopelessness. And some nights, she'd wake up stuttering with her eyes wide open, face filled in sweat, asking if we're okay. All she's ever wanted is for her sons never to bleed, but to write and read. And we wish her never to plead, but to dance in peace. She is strong. I had never seen this woman cry until my father died. And trust me, she had plenty of chances to cry. But she always showed us that it was gonna be alright. She made me a poet. God put me in this position, so I speak what my eyes have seen, creating scenes, living in the past to create dreams. I speak for people without a voice. And this is not to preach, but to teach and reach the weak ones. People like me, so I never hesitate to resuscitate the sleeping souls, those trapped under the sea of icicles. I was made a poet by my prayers as a young boy. Dear Lord, tonight let me not go to sleep so when something hits the door I can get up and run. Dear Lord, please, please help me to be killed by a gun or a bomb for I do not want to be slaughtered by a machete or a knife. God, please, Restored the love between Tutsis and Hutus. We are tied by the same harness on the same land. We share the same language. Why do we spill our own blood? I was made a poet by my church choir. They sang the most transcendent melodies. Sometimes it made me feel like Jesus was coming back. The kindness in our village they shared everything, not just smiles and handshakes, but they shared salt and fire. They prayed for each other, not just that conversation prayer, but prayers of meditation, connection and faith. I was made a poet by the elders' profound proverbs. Surrounded by a strong kinship, they spoke and we listened. My eyes glistened as they told tales of our history, turning mystery into poetry. And that's why I remember the scenes when the cloudless moon came to play at night and we danced. Fire sparks and dust filled the air as we stomped the ground. We were dancing on the same drum beat our ancestors sang on. To this day, I still hear the ancient drums echoing in silence. And that means Africa is calling. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number seven. This is the Visions and Tones podcast and... I'm with a very great friend, a great writer, a great poet, great narrator, somebody who paints a certain picture with words and melodies, great rhymes, with a deep voice, a very great friend of mine. Welcome to uh, my good friend, 
uh, sort of zone of writing and zone of presentation. His name is Roger Ndayambaje from Rwanda. Roger, welcome to the Visions and Tones. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tony. It's a pleasure to be here. Right. I've been trying to get to you for the longest time possible. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while, bro. And finally you're here. Mm. I'm, I'm glad to have you. Um, if you can, if you can just tell our listeners a bit, who is Roger, where you are from, just very briefly. Mm. So, as Tonya said, my name is Roger. Um, I was born in Congo. I grew up in Uganda. And my family originally comes from Rwanda. Um, I just, uh, I'm a registered nurse. I've just been up in the mountains of Tambaramba. Right. I'm sure you haven't heard of that name. It's I've a, never heard of that. Yeah, so I was there for, for a year doing my new grad. Um, and I actually got back on Friday, last Friday. And um, yeah, so really happy to be back in the city of Newcastle, man. I love this place. So basically, Australia mm. is the fourth country that connects who Roger is. Definitely, yep. That's me. Right. Um, t- tell us a little bit. You said you're from Rwanda, but you lived in other places. How, mm. how is that the case? Yep. So I think I don't know a lot of history, you know, of like my family and all, but a lot of Rwandans, um, they're cattle grazers, so they have a lot of cows. And like back in the days, my grandfather, you know, moved to Congo with his cows. And I think in Congo, there's a section where there's a lot of Rwandans and they've been they, they call themselves Congolese, you know, even though they speak Kenya Rwanda, I think we have a bit of an accent, a different accent of Kenya Rwanda than someone who was born in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my family, you know, my mom was born in Congo. I think the part we come from is called Masisi and they, um, yeah, they have a lot of cows, a lot of, a lot of like farmers. So my family was with farmers and cowboys I think yeah so I guess I guess the move to the Congo happens before the famous genocide mm. the atrocity yeah yeah way way before mm. yeah. Mm. and and what a beautiful way to actually open the show with a piece that you wrote you you speak about your mom and you touch base about your history you touch base about Rwanda and I'm thinking about all those things that mm. your, your work actually touches a bit on also activism in general, not particularly the piece you delivered. Mm. And you speak somewhere about your child, you speak somewhere about, you know, love being the vaccine and whatnot. Tell us a bit about mm. your work. What, what draws the inspiration towards yeah. your writing and your line of thought? Man, it's funny, you know, hearing you describe me as an activist because... I definitely don't see myself as one. And like a, a few people have said like, man, like your poetry is filled with so much, yeah, of like activism. And I was mm. like, bro, like that's not me. You will never find me at, um, you know, like a rally holding signs. But I think, I don't know, like my poetry is definitely inspired by, you know, my story, like places I've been and things that I see. Because anything that touches my heart, I find myself thinking about it, you know, regularly. And I find myself writing and, yeah, I think, yeah. So I I write a lot about, like, you know, the refugee camp. um, And these days, whatever's going on in the news, there's too much, man. I just, I write about it. And I'm um, I'm a nurse, so there's a lot of... uh, yeah, um, sad things you see and it's a good way to unload and just, you know, break mm-hmm. things down. Yeah. I, I, I like what you say, the fact that you never thought of yourself as an activist and I, I guess that's why a lot of people think the fact mm-hmm. that for someone to be an activist you have to be in a rally holding mm-hmm. placards or chanting songs or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I think I think activism actually is very broad because there's some people who, who are not sort of... Uh, very fond of the public space. Mm. So what they'd rather do sort of use maybe even uh, social media activism, the use mm. of a hashtags and whatnot, that you find they are more comfortable using that than being physically in a place yeah. where there's like singing, chanting and whatnot. And you know that probably in the third world, there's, there's most likely to be 
violence involved as, as opposed to what is happening in the, in, the, in the first world. But I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you, you can think more further about that. But I like the fact that uh, um, uh, you, you, you touch a whole lot of things that actually falls deep into activism. If, if you do not mind mm. me asking, can you talk a little bit through about you, you speaking in your, in your piece, mm. the one you opened about, the, you know, God reuniting the Hutus and the Tutsis, what, what, what does that mean for you? Mm. Man, it's, um, oh, I think that's like a, such a, a hard topic because, you know, being raised in that community, the Rwandan community, like I don't know that much, but I just, I sense that there's a lot of, um, a lot of hurt from the people, like, uh, and, um, you know, like, I mean, as I said, like we are the same people, we follow the same traditions, same language, but what happened in 94 was such a, an atrocious thing, like, that, um, yeah, something you wouldn't think like a human being is capable of. And that was like a really dark time. And, um, yeah, like growing up, I've heard a lot of stories, you know, through my own family and the community. And it's something I would, I never want to see. Like, I, I love Rwandan people, man, like so much. I love the culture. And, um, yeah, my dream is to see them just forget about the ethnicities and yeah, embrace embrace each other because yeah, it was we don't want ninety four to repeat anywhere, not just Rwanda, but you know, in the human race. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's one of the thing that actually continues to to sort of haunt you know, people from Rwanda even today mm. and, you know, you see and somewhat sense even the tension yeah. among people in the diaspora. For sure. So so definitely what you're talking about is something that I, I, I can actually say. I advocate for the, you know, more prayers that mm. the, the, the tribal tension should actually come to, to an end and, you know, your piece really inspired me when I heard you saying that to say, here's Rose, you know, um, you didn't really spend much time in Rwanda, but you're still mm. sort of in touch with the history back then. You may not, you may not really talk much about it because I mean, there's so mm. many things that are happening in the world, yeah. and you also speak a little bit about, um, you know, in one of your pieces, seeing a, a cancer patient and and whatnot. Mm. I mean, it's too many things that one accumulates mm. in life overall. So yeah, tell tell me a bit about your mom for mm. you to sort of have your mom in, in these kind of opening piece. Mm. I mean, she she sounds like a very... You're painting a picture of her as this mm. strong woman and what a tribute way to actually open mm. the show, you know, talking about your mom. Yeah, man, dude, my mom, she's a... Yeah, she's a, a strong woman, you know, like she raised uh, three boys all on her own, you know, because we lived in Uganda and the refugee camp, we were there for eight years... And, you know, after my dad passed, she never remarried. And often people would ask her, oh, you know, my mom's name is Nira Kamanzi. And they'll be like, oh, Nira Kamanzi, why don't you marry? You're still young. What does Nira Kamanzi mean? Nira Kamanzi. Ah, oh, man. I think it's a really old Rwanda name. I right. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> I don't know the meaning of it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really old, old name. But, um, yeah, and she'd always say, oh, like, why do I need a man in my life when I have three in the house, you know, and she's referring to me and my two mm. brothers. And like, I mean, you know, African moms, like they will never like, my mom is not one for like a physical affection or she never, she's never like, oh, I love you. She's not going to yeah, go right. hugging you. Even if I hug her, she'll just be like, what, uh, what happened? Like who died? <laughs> <laughs> But like, man, like that woman works so hard. Like I remember in, when I was still in Uganda, like she would, you know, wake up at like four in the morning, walk like kilometers away to work in like someone's garden just so she can, they, they can give her like potatoes or something to bring home and, and, and cook. And yeah, she always made sure that we were filled, we had a, a full stomach and like, those were the first few years we were in Uganda. And afterwards, she just, 
you know, she started growing, like farming. She grew like uh, sorghum, like beans, potatoes, and she like she would literally grow acres. And then she would, at the end of it, she would sell stuff and get people to help her out. Um, you know, she would sell like um, sorghum, buy a whole bunch of chickens. And then sell chickens and buy goats. By the time we left, we had like two cows and like 20-something goats and a whole bunch of chickens. And that's, that was all her. Like, we were literally in a refugee camp, but we were, not, we were not hungry. Like, the first few years there were rough. Like, I didn't go to school. I, I, I was the shepherd boy. I would look after my goats. But, um, yeah, she's just a very... Like I'm really I'm I'm an introvert and I think she is too but she doesn't take crap from anybody like she will fight when she has to fight. Um so yeah, like she never went to school. Um but yeah, she's one of the smartest people I know. Um I mean how uh, yeah, I mean there's there's a number of things you said there that I'd love to to touch on but I, I won't go much far back. I love the fact that you're actually explaining how, and maybe you can tell us what this mean, meant to you. And I know you're trying to understand mom and you explain that she, she, she is partly introverted. Mm. And I think, I think with most African kids, we, we, we have actually observed this with our parents, the fact that the, their sort of kind of love, you mm. see it from, their action than them, you know, being very open, like I love you mm. and being all affectionate and whatnot. Yeah. And, but I mean, the picture you're painting about your mom, she worked very hard and, and, and I'm thinking, wow. Cause mm. at the same time you share the story about your experiences in, in a refugee camp. I mean, mm. many people in the refugee camp have got either a lot of sad stories, so to say, mm. but but here you are. It's still a sort of sad story being in a refugee camp, so to say. But there's sort of a better life, mm. and and you know your mom not being prohibited to sort of work hard. I'm sure she may have come across mm. a certain forms of challenges, mm, of but she never sort of um, relented, so to say. She continued mm. working hard so that she can raise the three boys. Yeah. So, I mean, looking at life today, Rose being the age that you are, have seen a whole lot of things. Mm. What sort of advice can you give to the boy child out there mm. who's been raised by a single mom? Because, mm. I mean, you can see how the world is polarized today. You can see a whole lot of issues on gender-based violence, you know, boys who grew up. Because some, some, some of the reasons that boys who grew up without, you know, the father tends mm. to be you know, in a certain way. But here you are, I feel like you're presenting an opposite picture that you grew up around mom, mm. but you're a good man. I mean, you, you studied, apart from doing poetry, you studied and you're working mm. as a professional nurse at the moment. Mm. How would you speak to the boy child who's been raised by a single mom yeah. out there? Oh, man, yeah, that's a huge question. Like, I feel like, like one of my biggest, biggest fears when I was yeah, you know, when I came to Australia was that I would never, you know, become something, something I would never have like a job to like, you know, look after my own family just because, you know, I came here when I was twelve. Mm -hmm. So I pretty much went straight to, to high school. Um no primary school. I couldn't read or write. I I literally I couldn't write my own name. It was like, man, so I just like, I just think like, man, like, I, am I going to work in the chicken factory? Will that be my life for good? Like if I ever have a family, will I be able to provide them when they need something? And um, so I worked hard, man. Like I was like, I'm just going to give it everything I have. And like, I, I just feel like the biggest problem is if you don't have, a, like if you have a goal, it doesn't matter how big it is. It just gives you hope to follow something like right. And so many times, like, you'd feel like, man, I'm not progressing. And, like, I felt that so many times, especially, like, when I started uni, you know, like, I, in, like, um, high school, I didn't do maths. I didn't do any sciences. And, like, with nursing, you've got to have a basic understanding of maths. You don't want to give someone a wrong dose of a drug. And, right. of course, a lot of, like, science, which I didn't do. 
and I could barely write an essay and man, it was so hard. And yeah, um, so yeah, I just, I feel like, I mean, it is very important to have a father in your life, a man figure, but honestly, like you cannot, um, yeah, yeah, like you can't make it as an excuse to like turn out bad because you don't have someone to look after. There's so many people to look forward to. Like for me, like, I mean, I go to church and there's men there that have, I've, I've just seen the way they carry themselves and I'm like, okay, like, you know, I would like to be like that someday. And I, I just try to take that as an example. Um, and I, I always wanted to make my mom like proud to be like, okay, she's got me. Like if she needs anything, I got her. So I don't know, man. I think, yeah, just because you don't have, you, you're in a single, you know, single parent home like you can you can be anything that you want to be you just gotta yeah you have tech just yeah work right. hard <laughs> i don't know from mm. nakivale to newcastle mm. can you paint for us that picture okay so this is a poem called from nakivale to newcastle and it just yeah, it talks about yeah coming to Australia, what it was like in the refugee camp, and yeah. In childhood, me and the brothers roamed the hood, robbing food like Robin Hood. Our hearts still good, dodging spears and curses they try to harm us we never cower hearts enormous we cause a fire revolutions revealed in little us parting through the sea of trouble unafraid and faithful like moses cause this is all we've ever known the young sages under siege peacefully we pillage its all survival Growing up in the ghettos of Nakivale, refugee camps from Kigali up the hill to Old Congo near the valley. I remember these places like the palms of my hands. From Kashojwa primary school, more like a military school. The jungles of Nyarugugu and Isangano where I grazed my goats to Iporoti where we grew maize and sorghum. These places I was refined, lessons learned to grind or die in a bind. Since an infant, we've always been running. Never had a place to call our own. I questioning my purpose in this circus. Adversity seems enormous. Life a grain of sand, my voice is significant. And sometimes I get nervous. But when I feel like I'm drowning, I unfold my knees and breathe. I fix my smile and remain joyous. Cause I blossomed in the mix of the matrix where children bleed. They feed on breadcrumbs, starvation, death calling. You can hear the last drums. Mothers mourn oceans pleading for this thirst of peace to cease. But Australia... You recognized our existence. You became our home, welcomed and credited us in your palms so preciously like children, like human, clothed and educated us. Now we possess illustrious dreams, our future illuminated. But still, sometimes, the ghostly frequencies of a convict's conflict action still present. Terranolius, acrimonious attacks on indigenous tribes, mean like Idi Amin, poisonous potency, discrimination against anyone different, hate and injustice. It seems the only vaccine is love. Love is the vaccine. Interesting. There is a line there where you speak about since we were infants, we've been running. Mm. 
how would you describe your life now? Are you still mm. in running? And the running, is it the running of the past or is the running of the contemporary, the running of new challenges? Mm. And yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, since an infancy, we've always been running and we were running for so many years, you know, like we... Yeah, like uh, being born in, um, you know, in in Congo, then moving to Uganda. So, I mean, the reason we, we got to come to Australia is because we were stuck in this refugee camp. We couldn't go back to Congo because Congo, they say it's not a country. We couldn't go to Rwanda because we say we're Congolese and we're just in Uganda. So, we're just stuck there and some people are still there to this day, you know, and um, so I think all these countries like Australia, America, um, Canada, some other European countries were taking um, people from the refugee camp, like the like widows, old people, people who were disabled. Yeah, and that's kind of how we got to come here. We honestly, we didn't ask for it. And to this day, I think of it and it's such a miracle. Um, anyway... As you asked me that question, I'm still running. Um, I think, I think I, 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 I would say I am somehow, but um, I'd rather be running in Australia than be running in you know, in a refugee camp just because being like a black man, um, you know, in a white white society, there will always be challenges, but I don't think. Uh, I don't think anything can face me in Australia. Like nothing anyone can say or do to me as long as I have peace. I have a house to go to and sleep. I have enough food to eat. Like honestly, there's nothing like. Right. Yeah, like uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like yeah, yeah, I love how you're painting that picture mm. for me because I was almost coming there to say, can can you speak? a little bit on racism, a bit mm. of your experiences here. And mm. I mean, so when you say since your infancy you've been running, mm. I, I think this can also temper a bit on the issue of identity. Who, who exactly am I if mm. in Rwanda I cannot find a place, in Uganda, you know, I also cannot sort of find a place because I'm being reminded about where my parents are coming from. And mm. then you hear they're also saying, you know, go back to Africa or whatever mm. the case. Can, can you speak a bit about your experiences being here mm. on racism and sort of part of ways in which you, you sort of uh, deal with it? Mm. So, I mean, bro, like, I feel like Australia, most Australian people are, like, super welcoming. Like, of course, you know, they, they welcome me in their country. and But, of course, just like anywhere if you go to, to Africa, you'll find racist people. Right. Even people that look black like you, they will be racist towards you. So that's like, it's impossible not to find, um, you know, evil or just like bad people in every environment you go to. And like in Australia, I've definitely experienced um, racism, whether it's on the street, whether it's on in the hospital. I think it's a lot more subtle, like, People will not just come and say right to your face, but it's, yeah, like just like like assumptions or like, yeah, mainly assumptions or like you just meet someone in the street who just goes straight away, tell you to go back to your country or call you the N-word. But sometimes it hurts, especially in the hospital. Sometimes it hurts when you're trying to help and someone like refuses your help or like say oh like I don't want blacky touching me when all you're trying to do is help but like I mean like at, a, at uni they teach us they like you know you're gonna and people are like they're very vulnerable in the hospital some of them are dying they you know in like their lowest in life so you try and understand it but for me yeah, yeah like honestly racism I don't know I, I, are you coping? Are you talking to someone? Yeah. Or are you just sitting in, in, in silent, Roger? Uh, more like, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure, like, at hospitals, 
like my core co-workers are always protective like if something happens and like they see it they they act upon it you know which is mm. you know which is really good so yeah but I, i'm sweet bro it doesn't keep me awake at night right yeah, yeah. In, in one of our chats you mm. talk about so you left you left back home mm. at the age of 12 yeah Mm, Uganda, yeah. Uganda, at the age of twelve. Mm. What was it? Twelve already to here or elsewhere? Mm. Where Where did you go from twelve? Oh, so we literally came straight. So we, yeah. So we came straight to Newcastle. Mm. So, I love the fact that you know at some point in one of our chats you're talking about you going back home mm. and you sort of re reuniting with some family members. Yeah, and um. You're getting a bit of a touch of that. I guess I, I'm not. I'm not going to go deep about what what were your experience reuniting mm-hmm. with them, but you can touch base on it if you yeah. feel like there's something you want to share there. Yeah. But I'm interested in the fact that you write a piece to your future son, mm-hmm. and in most of your work, you actually, you know, I guess it's the same piece where you write your mm-hmm. future son, where you 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 actually speak about not dying anytime soon because you sort of carry the hub of African knowledge from mm. parents or whatnot. Yeah. And I'm thinking your future son, is there room for you also taking mm. your future son back home to sort of reunite with the people there and what, what sort of special place will that be for you before mm. you can paint the picture then about how your future son will look like yeah. through your piece? Man, dude, Africa is... Yeah, Africa, I think, like, Africa is the future, bro. Like, it's growing on, like, a crazy level. Like, I mean, first, before I go into it, um, let me just tell you how, like, I got reconnected with my family again. It's ridiculous, bro. Like, so my cousin, Jean-Claude, found my number of this, um, this girl that we used to live with in Uganda. Now she lives in Belgium. And he just... He's like, oh, cause like, um, he knows her family and they were talking about it. He's like, oh, do you know Nirakamanzi? We, we've heard they're in, they used to live in Uganda. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, cause my mom talks to them. And, um, anyway. Sorry, is this happening in Belgium? The chairs, what, what, where, mm. where is this happening? So my cousin is still in Africa. Right. And my friend lives in Belgium. Right. And they know each other. And they were talking about it. I don't know how my name, like our family came up, but he got... But over the phone, text yeah, yeah. or whatnot. Yep, yeah, on WhatsApp. Right. Yeah. And um, so he sends me this huge message saying, oh, my name is Jean-Claude. I'm the son of um, Abraham, who's my uncle. Like, uh, are you Roger? Like, son of Nina Kamanzi? And I was like, oh. Anyway, I, I was like, oh, like, there can't be a scam because how would they know, like, our names and all? And I showed it to mom and she was like, whoa, like, she's... Yeah, she, she was like, yeah, got emotional. And anyway, we got connected. He introduced us to like all these family members. A lot of them that we thought had died in like some, like either the Rwandan genocide or other wars in Congo. And most of them had given up on my mom. They literally thought she died in one of them. Anyway, flash forward a few couple of years and I took mom back to Rwanda and like that was like the most amazing experience which for like now twenty I think it was like twenty nineteen like January right. when they stayed there for a month and at the airport like literally everyone was there like we have families in Kigali and like my uncle came from uh from uh Congo as well and they were all there like everybody lined up they had flowers like they were crying and. For me, they were just a bunch of strangers. I had never seen mm. them. Like, mom would talk about them, but I'm like, oh, cool. But they just embraced us, like, and, um, yeah, it was just, like, amazing hearing all these stories about my mom. Like, she's been a hustler since she was a little man. Like, apparently she used to have, like, um, she would, yeah, like, when she was, like, 15, would, like, my grandpa gave her a garden, she would grow stuff, sell it. She had a whole bunch of, like, pigs as well. And uh, anyway, so, like, being there, I just felt, like, super connected to Africa and to my culture. And, um, yeah, I would 
love to take my kid if I'm blessed with one to Africa as well and just you see the the continent. Yeah. yeah. So you you write a piece for your future son mm. and I believe it's the piece comes also from the wisdom mm. that you, you, you actually collected even from mom and Rose being a man who understands you know the, the you know the importance of growing kids in a mm. healthy environment and Rose understands the importance of growing a child in a respectful manner even to women especially in in, in this world where it's very you know kind of much of a challenge to come across a lot of young boys being respectful to women mm. so to say yeah can you can you can you speak to your future son for us mm. sure my son i am waiting for you the day you grace earth i will rejoice I will hold you in my palms, protect you from harm. I will sing songs sung by my mother when I was born. I will write and recite your thousand poems to remind you that you have a home. Son, my love for you is built on a stone never to be shattered or torn. And as your father, I will never conceal to express my pride in you. My genetics, you are my little universe and your body holds essence of generations before me. My good parts are your inheritance and I will guide you to avoid my rugged tenements. Daily I will send a million altitude of gratitude to God for sending his son to die for my son and son let me tell you, you are not an accident. For these poems are prophecies of echoed promises exposing my heart to you. So as we begin this exodus of us exploring this rusting life, forgive me when I am weak and disappoint you. When I am no longer your superhero, talk to my father in heaven. But remember, you are embedded in the left region of my chest and I will love you till my body goes to rest and child. Your existence invigorates my soul to the core. Introduction of contemplation of you when I was a teen. Back then, life was tough without a father. When I had big questions and grand decisions, I imagined you asking me for advice, so I took the advice I would have given you. They say the boy is the father of the men, and you have been my splendid silent teacher. You have sculpted me into a man, even though I am yet complete, my roots dig even deeper. So little boy, I will raise you into a man, teach you to flex more brains than biceps, open more books than Facebook. In this world of desensitized youth and lost innocence, I will fight with you. In this world of materialized women, I will send lullabies of chivalry. In this dark, deceiving, desolate world of devils disguised as disciples delivering poison, passion in portions, I will search for the light with you. That is beautiful. Mm. Let's talk a bit about your writing, the difference of writing about something you have seen mm. or experienced and writing about something of the kind of future. What, what, what way does it mm. have over you? How do you make sense of that kind of writing and how do you deal with the pressures and because and, and, I feel like there, sh there is a bit of pressure in terms of you, you're setting out expectations yeah, 100%. here. 100%. Yeah. yeah. So. Oh man, yeah, now dude, I feel like you're definitely writing something for the future. Like this poem, like it's, it gives me like something to, 
to aim for and look forward to and like it's an accountability for me because if I want to be a good man, someone who my my kids will be proud of, like then I need to build myself now, you know, because I don't I don't want to be a wife beater. I don't want to be someone who doesn't have a job, who doesn't work hard. So I want to be a good example to him uh, or her. Um, so yeah, like definitely like writing something like this is, yeah, definitely pushes you to be better because you've already, you know, I've said this is what I want to be. I've spoken it to you. Mm-hmm. Every time I share it, share this poem, people are like, oh yeah, this is what you want to be. I, then I, I can't go and start being the opposite of what True. I just said, you know. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's I guess that's one of the good thing about poetry and writing. Like it helps you. You know, just yeah, put things into action, and because like if if I um yeah I'm talking about this poem and then I'm doing the opposite, I'll just feel so ashamed. True. Yeah. I, I like what you you know how you even think about your poetry itself and the goals you're setting up for yourself. Mm. Um, and and I guess one of the questions that I had for you with all the like the lived experiences, the things that you see from people around, do you think poetry helps us heal? Mm. Mm. Um, I think so. I mean, yeah, it's definitely like a therapeutic thing to do. And yeah, like at least for me, I feel like, yeah, writing and running like, I'm like an avid runner. I love mm. running. So every time um, something is on my chest and I write about it, even if I don't share it with anyone else, I just I always feel like relief. Um, so yeah, I think, I think some people just put too much pressure on themselves when they're writers. Like for me, honestly, to this point, I still, I mean, I guess I'm a poet, but yeah, like I just, I, I still am like, oh, I'm just a dude who sometimes writes. Um, but if I put my, that pressure on me, I'm like, oh, I have to write this many words each day, then I probably wouldn't really enjoy it that much. Oh, I don't know, man. I, how, how do you deal with, yeah. how do you deal with silence when, mm. when, you, when your creative mind, mm. sorry, when your creative mind hits yeah. sort of a bound, you know, yeah. a dead end? Mm. Uh, bro, that it happens. It happens to me a lot. Like when I was in Tambarumba, like I barely wrote. Did like you know, twenty twenty, I barely wrote anything. Like I wrote a lot of like short little poems or little thoughts. Um, but I'm I'm still I'm I'm fine with that. Like it's like I mean, when I do like now I'm back in Newcastle. There's like a you know, I'm close to Sydney. There's a lot of like open mics mm. I can go to. That will push me to write. And it's not really pressure. It's because I want to perform. I want to see my friends perform, so I'll go. But in Tampa, there wasn't any... It was just me. There wasn't anything that's pushing me to write. Right. But I was still writing, like just not necessary poetry, but just, I don't know, thoughts or words. Like I'm... I'm recently getting reading more, but before I was never really a reader. Mm. I was a word collector. Like every time if I'm on a bus, if I hear something on the TV or radio, like a nice word, mm. I, in my phone I have so many words that I've collected. If it sounds good to my ear and it sounds nice when I say it, I write it down. And when I'm writing poem, I, I go through my word collection. And most of those words mean exactly what I'm trying to say. Right. Yeah. But should should everyone be mm. a writer? Should everyone be a poet in your in your own thinking? Um, I don't think so. I don't think everyone needs to be a writer. Um, there's there's a lot of heaps of like you know myriads of ways you can express yourself. You can you know get what's in your mind, put it out in like a tangible way, whether like painting or music or. Yeah. I don't know, running. There's heaps of you just gotta find your thing. You right. know, for yeah. me it's it's writing. Um, you know, but 
yeah, I think I, I think it's important to find something like an outlet. Mm. Otherwise, it's yeah. Explain for us. I think mm. it's the opening piece about your mm. mom. The summer where you describe her as a poet. Yeah. Doing, you know, uh, gardening. Ah, uh, yeah. I honestly don't know how that line came up. Uh, ever since I was young, she's always had a garden. Mm. You know, even at her house in Hamilton, she's got like. You know, the back and front yard filled with like, you know, like taro, mm. corn, uh, uh, cassava, all these things we ate back home. And so, I mean, I think she's a poet because she makes she makes things look beautiful. You know, take some rugged soil, grow something that nourishes the body and it looks good to nice. the eye, something good to see and like. She tends to it, waters it every morning and afternoon. Mm. And um, yeah, so I feel like I, I see her as a poet because, you know, I turn words into images. She turns soil into food and, you know, living crops. Uh, who, who, which other poets out there sort mm. of inspire your thinking and your writing and your mm. delivery? Um, back in the days, I used to watch a lot of like YouTube, uh, like uh, poets, like Button Poetry. There's a lot of good poets there. But in Australia, I love Luca Lesson. Mm-hmm. Uh, my good friend Will Small from um, Central Coast, like that dude is, yeah, he's he's an awesome writer, awesome man. Um, so I love his work and yeah, like the poetry circle is really big. Yeah, the poetry circle around um, Central Coast is really big. And um, but yeah, besides that, I just I love music. I love hip hop. Right. I've actually before I got into poetry, I was like, oh, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna become a rapper. But my voice is so high. I don't think am I. I got a, a rapping <laughs> voice, but I love like Black Thought. I love. His right. music, I think, is an awesome writer. So, yeah, I think for me, I listen to a lot of, like, hip-hop, a lot of underground stuff. Uh, yeah. Mm. Two maybe last questions or so. Mm. Uh, how, what, what is it that you're leaving us with today, mm. Roj? Any golden thought, any golden idea that you're leaving us with today? Oh, Man, I am not. I'm not that wise, bro. I don't have anything. So <laughs> I think you are. Uh, You're actually speaking about love being the vaccine. Mm. Man, okay, okay. Well, I just came back from Tambaramba, right? Um, I was there. It's a really small town. You know, came out of uni straight into a hospital, which I just felt like an imposter for the first couple of months. Mm-hmm. And it was so hard, so hard being away from my family. Um, you know, I didn't really feel supported. And um, so I guess what I would say is like, man, like, because I was uncomfortable, bro. I wanted to come home immediately. But I was like, I cannot quit halfway. Uh, like, if I don't finish my year, I know, I know I'm going to hate myself for it for ages. So... If you're doing something hard, it doesn't matter what it is. If it's making you uncomfortable, you're losing sleep, you're stressed. Like, just keep going, man. Like, don't don't quit. Like, that stress will not be there forever. Like, you know, like for me, like that year felt like 10 years. Mm. And it was like so far away from home. I couldn't just take a, you know, drive home on the weekend or on my days off and... I didn't know a single person there. But I guess, yeah, dude, like, just, if you're uncomfortable, keep being uncomfortable. Just, that's life, man. Like, I think I was definitely sheltered being close to home, all my friends around, like, but yeah, 2020, I feel like, taught me a lot, bro. Like, it was just after the fires, they were affected by the fires there. Yeah. So the morale in the work wasn't great, and then COVID came. All these ideas I had in my head of like places I was going to visit, all the adventures I was going to go to didn't really happen. 
So, yeah, and like I didn't feel competent, you know, in the beginning. And, you know, I want to be a good nurse, you know, I really want to make my patients comfortable and like feel like that I care. But if you don't feel that confident in your skills, it just doesn't make things easier. But yeah, man, just get it, work hard. If you're struggling at uni, find people, surround yourself with good people that will help you out. And, and like, you don't have to be a genius. But I am not a genius. I'm one of the slowest learners. You're a word genius. <laughs> that I can confirm, you're a word genius. Dude. Um, yeah. Welcome back to Newcastle. No, thank and you. And I'm looking forward to having more of your work, you know, mm. presented to us, your yeah. creative writing, your provocative thought mm. processes and whatnot. And thanks for joining me within the Visions and Tones podcast. And mm. I am definitely looking forward to seeing you um, in the near future again. Mm. Right. If you can talk to your grandparents. Mm. Mm as a way of leaving us with something to think about. Yeah. All right. And while Rose is actually preparing to do that visions and tones, I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen to this episode. And thank you for your love and support as always. And looking forward to seeing you again in the near future. Have a good one. Kaka, Sogokuru, Muraha Murakoma, it's me, your grandson. Many years have passed and I've grown out of touch. We have crossed many seas for a better life. On this new land, we speak foreign tongues now. We can read and write, but we're forgetting how to communicate now. Sogokuru. I have been told many stories about you and the men of your generation. The men who walked through blazing forests to save the sacred ways. Courageous warriors indeed. What happened to your seeds? Many of us have scattered overseas, some deceased, some still climbing out of the creases of a crumbling world. I'm a growing man, but really I'm losing myself. Sogokuru, how will I become a man when my most intimate advisors are strangers that reach me through abstract lines? Somehow, I find myself learning from the grapevine. Mom has told me of the days when the family would gather by the fire. Elders would speak of our great-great-grandfathers. This was a place to connect through stories, poetry, imigani, ibisakus, onibjevugo. So please, speak to me now. Watch me grow, for I carry you within me.